The purpose of God is to melt down saints so that we can be circulating through the mainstream of humanity. God's people, God's men and women, people of faith are to be real Christians, real followers of Jesus, living in the real world. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we have described for us an individual who God prepares to live against the flow of his day. His name is Elijah. And what we have been learning about this individual as we've worked our way through 1 Kings 17 is that God takes Elijah to various locations. God moves Elijah to various locales for a period of three and a half years. And he spends a lengthy time at each one of those locations. What we are understanding, what we are learning, what we highlighted last night is that Elijah's life is being transformed. He is God's choice to shine brightly in a very dark era of the northern kingdom of Israel. And what we discover when we look at verse 1 of this chapter is that he is noted as Elijah the Tishbite. He's just a common, ordinary person. There's nothing fantastic about where he has been raised. There's nothing fantastic about uh, his, uh, his uh, way of living except for the fact that he tells us there that he serves the true and living God. And what's interesting is that by the end of the chapter, he is no longer referred to as Elijah the Tishbite, but in verse 24, there is a woman who has been watching this individual's life and says, I am certain of something now. I know that you are a person of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. There is a tremendous transformation in the life of this individual. And it takes a period of three and a half years. How does the passage develop? What is God's movement in the life of Elijah? Well, verse 1 tells us that he suddenly appears before King Ahab. And as he appears before King Ahab, he proclaims that he serves the living God, and he talks about the fact that the God that he serves is going to do some things, and he's going to do it through me. And we fully expect that someone with God's message would pick up some TV time, at least take some kind of a website, and just begin to let everybody know that he's arrived and here's God's plan. But what we found out last night is that's not what God tells him to do. In fact, he tells him to go to the Kareth Ravine. He instructs him to go to a place of solitude. It's a quiet place. It's a place of isolation, a spot where God miraculously meets the needs of Elijah through nature. God says, I want you to go there. I want you to stay there. And if you'll go there and if you'll stay there, I will provide for you. I will have birds that will bring you morning meal and evening meal. And I will also give you the opportunity to provide life through the drinking of water. And you will drink water from the brook. God says, go. And God provides. And he uses nature 
the created world to meet the needs of Elijah. Now in verse 7 it says, some time later. Some translations read, after these things. What we begin to see here is that the Old Testament writer wants us to realize that this isn't just one crisis experience. What we need to understand is God is moving in the life of Elijah. And as God is moving in the life of Elijah, there come these periodic times where God says, okay, let's have another lesson. What we find is that uh, the person of faith is constantly and consistently available to new movement and direction that God has for them. And can I say that again and I have at least one amen? The person of faith constantly and consistently is available to the new movement and direction that God has for them in their lives. Verse 8 and 9 tells us that the word of the Lord comes to him and the word of the Lord is to go to Zarephath. And it goes on to tell us Hey, I want you to understand something, Elijah. I provided for your needs through nature over there at the Kareth Ravine. But something you have to understand, Elijah, that it's not just about you and me. What I want you to understand is that from the very beginning of my of recorded history, from the very beginning of my revelation in Genesis, and all the way through, we're going to find in the, in the New Testament, that all the way through, it's never just Jesus and me. It's just not God and me. I want you to understand something, that you have miraculously been provided for through the movement of nature, but over to Zarephath, I am going to provide for your needs through a widow. You see, my friends, there comes a depth of faith when we realize that God is interested in the community of faith. There comes a point when we begin to understand that God wants us to learn to be dependent upon each other because he is building a community of faith. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrews. As you go on through the book, uh, the, the book of the, the books of the Bible, it becomes the nation of Israel. And when you get to the New Testament, it's not just Jesus; it's the kingdom of God, and we have the reality of the community of faith known as the church. And so he says, you know what it is to have me miraculously use nature to take care of you. But I want you to know something. Now you're going to learn of the fact that you, uh, I'm going to use other people to take care of you. And uh, this widow is going to provide you with all you need. Verse 10 and 11 tells us that when he arrives there at Zarephath, he sees a widow gathering sticks and he asks her for some water and bread. Now talk about a real letdown. And he asked this widow for something to eat and drink. Notice what it says in verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now listen to this. I'm out here gathering sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Thanks a lot, Lord. <laughs> Maybe this isn't the right widow. Maybe there's another one on down the block here. 
Now, what I really love about the fact that he is maturing in his faith and he does not fall to the temptation to being a slave to first impressions. It's so easy to base our faith in what God can do by our human perspective and how we see someone. He was an individual who believed in God and he did not fall to the temptation of being a slave to first impressions. Verse 13 through 16, we are told that what the prophet does there is to tell that he has, tells that woman to go home and fix one meal. Uh, fix a meal for me, for you and your son. And I have the authority of God and God's promise is that the, he's going to be faithful and provide and what I want you to know, ma'am, is that uh, a jar of flour is never going to be used up. And I want you to know that the jug of oil will never run dry. And as you read through it, you find out that God does provide. Just as he provided there through nature in the opening scene, now as he is there in Zarephath, we see God keeping his promise. And though this widow has very little, what she has, God blesses it, and they never run out of what they need to bake bread. Now we've taken that time to get to verse 17 because we're going to outwork our way through the rest of the chapter. And the reason we've done that is because we have to understand what's taking place. In verse 17 it says, sometime later. In other words, after these things, after this lesson, because he's a person of faith who is consistently and constantly ready to move at God's impulse and ready to learn of what God has for them, what we have to understand, my friends, is that Elijah, at this particular point, is enjoying the, sad, the safety of a roof over his head and food every day. He has settled into the comfort and security of a routine of life. I've got a roof over my head and I've got food every day. But now, the person of God faces another test. Perhaps the greatest test of all. Because what he is going to deal with now is the question, what is happening at home? In the security of a house where I find safety, a roof over my head, and in the routine of having food on the table every day, in that scene of daily living, in that scene of the home, the real test comes. What occurs? First of all, we see sickness and death, verse 17 and 18. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Verse 18, she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? The routine of life enjoyed by Elijah and this widow who owns a boarding house where the prophet is living is jolted by a horrible event. The widow, again, verse number 9 and 10 tells us that she was very much by herself 
We don't know the story, but her husband had died. This woman who'd already lost a husband is now faced with uh, coming against another heart-rendering loss. As she comes before the man of God, she has her son in her arms. He is lifeless. He is dead. Her plans, her dreams are lifeless in her arms. And in verse number 18, she spits venom out. In her anguish and in her rage at the cruel thief of death, this woman lashes out at Elijah. Again, notice verse number 18. What do you have against me, man of God? What do you have against me, preacher man? What do you have against me, you follower of God? Did you come to just remind me of my sin? To remind me of the brokenness of my life? Have you just come here in the name of God to take the life of my son? She's distressed. She's disillusioned. And she speaks with sarcasm. I really believe when she calls him the man of God, she's got that sneer on her face. So this is the God that you serve. And she blames Elijah. And he has done absolute nothing. As we have noted throughout this chapter, and as we know throughout the six chapters that describe his life, the only thing that Elijah does is to obey the Lord. And he is becoming a person of God. And the truth is, he does not deserve the attack that comes from the heart and lips of this woman woman as she faces sickness and death. Verses 19 through 21. We find faith in prayer. Look at it with me, would you? Elijah replied, give me your son. He took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, oh Lord my God, Have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy and three times, stretched herself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to to him. Now, we cannot overlook what Elijah does not do. The remark of verse 18 is totally uncalled for. It's unjust. And my friends, it had a sting that could have prompted a bitter reply from Elijah. But rather than arguing with her, rather than seeking to defend himself, Elijah stands with her, bearing the weight of her pain in gentle and eloquent silence. What a beautiful description of a person of God. Rather than defending oneself, Rather than arguing, I'm right. The person of God bears the weight of someone else's pain with a gentle, elegant, eloquent, eloquent silence. See, he looks at her tear-stained, tear-streaked face. She sees the grief, and he sees beyond her anger and is moved with compassion. 
See, the person of God keeps this woman from any further hurt that could have, become, that could have been afflicted by untimely words. See, the person of God keeps the other person from any further hurt that could have been afflicted because of unkind, untimely words. Have you noticed it? We've been preaching holiness this week. Verse 19. He took, he carried, and he carried the lifeless body to where he was staying. I'm impressed by the fact of the compassion of Elijah. We see the self-control of, of his life by his not responding to an unfair criticism and sarcastic remarks. We see the depth of his compassion in that he gets involved in the situation. He says, give me your son. He doesn't say, I'm going to go up into my room and pray for you. He says, Give me your son. And my friends, the mark of a true person of God is seen in the fact we can see that we are being changed from a just an ordinary Joe into a person of God when we choose to be involved with the pain and hurt of our lives and the people of our homes. Elijah does something, first of all, on the vertical level. Verse 20, it says, he cried out to the Lord. He begins by responding with this vertical involvement. He cries out to the true and living God. And he says, my God, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow who, with whom I'm staying by causing her son to die? He cries out with a heartfelt compassion for the one who is hurting. It's not just, I'll pray for you, but it's a heartfelt cry out to God. And then, verse 21, he responds on the horizontal level because it says there, he stretches himself out on the boy and three times cried out to the Lord. That term that's translated, he stretched himself out is a very unique and rare Hebrew word. It's not easy to understand. What we have here, when we read these words, is the first time that those words are ever used in Scripture. The next time that they are used is in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 34. It's Elisha. And what Elisha does is he places himself on a dead body, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, and hand to hand. Acts chapter 20, verse 10. There is someone who's seated in the window where Paul is preaching. And Paul must have been a boring preacher because the gentleman fell asleep. And because he fell asleep, he fell out of the window. And when he hit the ground, he died. And so what Paul does is the same thing we see here where he places his body right there on top of the dead body. What do you do with something like that? Let's not make it too difficult. Please understand that there's nothing magical in the act. 
But what I think we have here in both of these, in all three of these scenes, is the prophet of God, the prophets of God, and the apostle Paul symbolically saying, Lord, you have given me life. I have life in you. I have life through you. And what I want you to do, Lord, is to take the life that you have given me and bring it into this lifeless body. What we see, my friends, is a level of involvement that is humbling. It goes right along with his testimony. I serve the true and living God. He is alive. He is well. And because he is alive and he is well, I am very much alive in him. And so he gets involved. He takes this young man, this young boy, he takes him up to his room and places him on his bed and he puts himself on it and says, Lord, I believe in you. You give me life. I want to share this life with this one. Take the life that you've given me and use it to bring life back to this young man. And he does it three times. Now, don't forget the context of Old Testament law and tradition. It's clearly stated that anyone who wanted to maintain purity of life must never touch an unclean, or excuse me, a dead body. But this individual is so in tune with the true and living God, he is not going to allow some law and tradition that has been expressed through the years to keep him from coming into contact three times with this lifeless body. My friends, what we have here is an individual who's being transformed from someone who is just a Tishbite from Tishbe, but he truly believes in the true and living God. And if God has placed him in a situation where he needs to touch that which is unclean, I'm going to do it three times. Sickness and death. Faith and prayer. Verses 22, 23, and 24, we see miracle and praise. Verse 22, the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a person of God and I know that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the real truth. What a beautiful scene. Elijah intercedes. God hears. The boy is resuscitated and Elijah simply gives the boy back to his mother. Though the person of God does something that's never been done before, brings someone back from the dead. He simply says, look, your son is alive. No, ta-da! I told you I was a person of God. Look at what I've done. 
And when you take it in the context of what she has said to him and how she has sarcastically slammed him, it would have been so easy. Here, in your face. No. God's power is displayed. And what this person of God does is allow God to have center stage. Elijah refuses to call attention to himself. And because of what she experiences, as she observes the life of this individual, this single mother who has a room that she is allowing the person of God to stay in, she has watched him, and she acknowledges two things. Truly, you are a person of God. And not only do I know now that you are a person of God, but what I am beginning to realize is that you not only talk the talk, you walk the walk. Because what you say is the truth. He didn't have to defend the truth. He was simply being watched by someone who watched him as he lived his daily life. And the testimony is, you're the real thing. It's the house. It's the home. It's the routine of life. It's one thing to be out there and have the birds and Mother Nature herself but used of God the Father to bring us some food. It's another thing to see this miraculous fact that the flour and the oil never run out. But what about what's happening in the home? Four real brief lessons that we learn from this scene. What attitudes reflect a person of God? Not what do they do, but what are the attitudes that reflect a true follower of God? First of all, I see contentment. Did you notice? It was biscuits and water, biscuits and water, biscuits and water, biscuits and water. He had to have gone weary of the fact that it's biscuits and water, biscuits and water, biscuits and water. But he never once complains because he realizes that God is providing. My friend, we have a living example of an individual who fleshes out the New Testament teaching of Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13, where the Apostle Paul says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He goes on in verse 12, I know what it is to have a lot, I, and I also know what it is to have to be in need. The secret of being content is in saying, I have learned the secret of being content in every single situation. If I'm well fed or hungry, if I'm living in plenty or if I'm living in want. It may be biscuits 
and water, but I have learned the secret of being content. And then he says in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's not his way of saying, no matter who I am, I can do anything in the name of Jesus. No, he's saying, I have learned the secret of being content. It doesn't matter what's going on in my life. I'm aware of it, but it doesn't control me. And no matter where I am, on one extreme or the other, I have learned the secret of being content. Contentment in the home. Second thing we learn, gentleness and self-control in the home. They tell us that uh, Sir Winston Churchill and uh, Lady Astor, who was the first woman seated in the British Parliament, did not like each other at all. One time, the two of them were in the same elevator, just the two of them, as the door closed. Now, Churchill had had a little bit too much to drink. And Lady Astor says uh, in disgust, Sir Winston, you are drunk. Churchill replied, and my lady, you are ugly, but tomorrow I will be sober. You know what? Some of us who hang around the holiness churches are so quick to return insult with insult. You know what we need? We need a fresh fullness of the Spirit where our daily lives reflect gentleness and self control, where we are, no, we are not so quick to return sarcastic insults with other derogatory statements. May the Spirit fill us with the fruit of self-control and gentleness so that those words characterize our life. If you go to 1 Peter, we're not going to take time to turn to it, but if you want to make note in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, it talks about the fact that during Christ's passion, before they nailed him to the cross, it says that they, hear, they hurled insults at him, and he did not retaliate. He suffered, and there was no response. There was no threatening back. Instead, it says, he entrusted himself to the God who judges. Holiness people, Christ-like people. And when we were in a situation, do we arm ourselves with the artillery that has been thrown at us and polish it up and fix it up and throw it back? Or are we like Jesus Christ, who understood that this person may be speaking out in tremendous anguish and sorrow and pain, and may we, like Jesus Christ, not respond and put our lives in the hands of the one that we say we trust, the true and living God. Gentleness and self-control. Thirdly, undiminished faith. 
Elijah spreads himself out on this dead body three times. The person of God. Elijah had learned at Kareth that God can be trusted. And because he understood that God can be trusted, he continues to intercede on the boy's behalf. He does not have a faith that is shallow. He does not have a faith that can be measured by time. He has a faith that is undiminished. And he's going to hold on to God. He's going to trust God because he knows that he serves the true and living God. And if God can take care of me back there at Karen, and if God can provide the food, he can take care of this situation. Undiminished faith. Fourthly, we see humility. True humility comes from the realization that we have been allowed to be a part of something beyond ourselves. As I now am over 60, I've been reflecting on the 30 plus years of ministry. I've been reflecting on the people who have made a lasting difference in my life. And you know what I've noticed? The people who have made a lasting difference in my life are the people who didn't try to make a difference in my life. They were just humble people. My friends, I'm amazed at what we see in this person, Elijah. In this man named Elijah, we have a unique combination. It's, un, it's without any shadow of doubt, we know without any uncertainty that this individual knew what it was to experience the power of God in his life. But we also see that he was absolutely humble. That's a rare and unique combination. To have the power and authority that comes with serving the true and living God, but at the same time maintaining this absolute humility. I'm a part of something that is greater than myself. I'm aware of the fact that it's not me. It's, the, it's God who I serve, and I'm going to stay out of his way, and I'm not going to seek the limelight. I'm just going to be his servant. Have you been listening to the NFL in the draft. The NFL has a real concern about what their players do in their homes. The NFL is really down on domestic violence. Oh, my friends. What goes on in our homes? Hey, I'm in church. When one of your children spits venom, do you demonstrate gentleness, self-control? We live in a yelling, screaming culture. See, the most difficult test if we are moving from being a Tishbite to being a person of God is what happens in the home.
That's why Paul says, hey, if you're seeking to be a leader in the church, what you need to check out is, what does your family say about you? It's a serious thing. I did not seek permission from my son to share this illustration, but I'm going for it. It was 28 and one half years ago. It was on this property. It was in the old sanctuary. I was preaching on a Sunday night. Our six-year-old son, when I was done preaching, before he ran outside to run with the other kids in the parking lot, handed me a picture. God is my dad and mom. Here's the original. Well, that's not good theology. (laughs) But it's good practical Christianity. Parents, the depth of faith and the level of Christ-likeness that your child most likely will experience will reflect what you have done in your faith and your Christ-likeness. 28 and a half years ago, November 1988, have I been a perfect father? No. Charlene's been a perfect mother. It's not about how we look when everybody sees us. The question is, what takes place 24-7, 365 days a year in our homes? It's the real test of the transformation that's coming in our lives. And it's not so much what we do You'll notice they were four attitudes. It's holiness. It's something on the inside. And it's alive. It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the reality of Jesus Christ. And it's deep within our being. And it affects what we say and what we do. It's a very simple song. It says... In my life, Lord, be glorified. In our home, Lord, be glorified. Tonight, we're going to have a very specific invitation. Mom, dad, sons and daughters of mom and dad, I think it'd be fantastic to end this week of revival having our family groups come together either stand together or sit together, kneel together allow our pastor to pray his blessing and protection upon our homes grandma, grandpa one girl, one three year old wrote an essay for her English class and 
describe your grandma. And uh, one of those things that the little girl wrote was, she wears funny underwear. (laughs) She also wrote, Grandma and Grandpa, they're the ones that seem to have more time than Mom and Dad. I don't know when that was written because, unfortunately, I think it's changed. There's a movement that started one year ago that is now spreading across America. It's called Legacy, Grandparent Legacy. Charlene and I had the privilege last November of meeting with about, I think about 800 other grandparents in Frisco, Texas, Chuck Swindoll's church. And we worshiped together and talked together and prayed together and committed ourselves that our grandkids, our grandkids are, are going to make it. And we dealt with issues. What if mom and dad don't want them to make it? Well, we'll God is great. God is good. As we sing in my life, Lord, be glorified. As we sing in our home, Lord, be glorified. And as we sing in our church, Lord, be glorified. I would invite you to get with your spouse if they're here. Get with your kids. Grandma and Grandpa, let's just form little groups all around the front of this church. And commit ourselves to demonstrating faith in the home. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Elijah. We're like the people there in Great Britain. We take these people of the scriptures and we make this beautiful statue of them. We sit them in a corner and we just look at them and we Say, ooh, and ah, wow. If we could only live like that. We read in the book of James that Elijah was a person just like us. But he prayed. And we've seen by looking at the 17th chapter of 1 Kings that his prayer was more than bless our food and bless our home. It was a prayer where just the Savior in him, the Lord God Jehovah in him. They just had this constant relationship and it took him to the depths of faith and depths of love that normal people wouldn't express. He got involved in the life of a single mother and her son. Lord, we know how the world would like to take that scene and pervert it. But my my. God, I believe, so worked in the life of this individual that he maintained absolute integrity and was involved with this single mom in a way that brought glory to Christ. Lord, we want to pray for our homes. And so as our pastor comes to lead us, and we're just going to come together with our families and pray that in our homes, the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. Feel free to get together with your family and let's gather as we sing this song.
families that are represented in this um, church tonight. Uh, the, the circle of influence each of them have, Lord, the possibilities of family. Lord, I, I'm aware as a dad that uh, I don't profess perfection, but Lord, I'm thankful that uh, in my desperate faithfulness, you're able to use me, even me, in the, uh, in the raising of boys. Lord, thank you for them, and I, I thank you for Spencer standing right next to me here. Wyatt, Dylan, and Terry, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of being their dad, the greatest office I'll ever hold. Lord, we're thankful that you, um, you give us families, you bless us with families. And Lord, all of us are thinking of those who've uh, had an influence in our lives and how we've been loved by others and, Lord, what that means. Lord, I pray that you'll help us. You'll help us, Lord, to be better at the task. Lord, sometimes it's easy to get caught up in going through the motions and we get so busy and, Lord, things fall by the side. And, Lord, we just pray that you'll help us. Help us to allow you to be the center of all our homes. May your Holy Spirit fill it. And may our homes be places of grace. And, Lord, I'm reminded of your words. As you sit with your disciples and your disciples say, Lord, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus looks at these disciples and says, Behold, my mother and my brothers. There's no orphans. There's no single mothers. There's no widows in the kingdom of God. All of us have a place. And whether, whether family surrounds us in this place, uh, physical, blood family surrounds us, the family of God surrounds us. And so, Lord, we're thankful for this place, uh, the church, where, where you can form a community, a family of faith, where we all have a part. So, Lord, it's not just us. It's not just families alone, but it's all of us together, allowing your Holy Spirit to move. Lord, I was just reminded this week that, that you don't just invite me to salvation, but you invite me to be part of a community that you're saving. And so, Lord, you're saving this community, and you want me to plug in and be a part, and you want my family to be a part. So, Lord, do what we cannot do. May your Holy Spirit complete the task, and, Lord, may you just move us on to greater love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll... Uh, Great week. Why don't you give uh, Brother Bob a hand? Don't you appreciate him? And let him know how much you love him. And uh, we, do, we do love Eric and Ashley, and we're glad they're here. And-